We're going to study tonight a group of tshuvas on the topic of Mechiras Chametz. Mechiras Chametz, the sale of Chametz, is a topic that has spawned a vast literature uh, in the Achronim over the last 400 years or so. As people have pointed out, as Poskin who have studied the, the issue have pointed out, Rav Zevin famously, and then Rav Asher Weiss in our time, Mechiras Chametz goes back to Chazal, Tosefta talks about selling chametz to a non-Jew to avoid owning chametz on Pesach. Tosefta even talks about planning to buy it back. But over the centuries, over the millennia, the, the, sale, the, the sale of chametz as practiced has evolved greatly. In the time of Chazal, certainly wasn't a routine matter. People occasionally might have sold chametz. They might have made a real sale, not even planned to buy it back. If they did plan to buy it back, it was simply a plan, but the sale was an ordinary sale an ordinary sale with an ordinary commercial character. Over the centuries, particularly in the, in the time of the Akronim, over the last several hundred years, the sale had be, became increasingly removed from any commercially meaningful transaction. In the early Akronim, they, they often used to do it. They would just sell all the chametz for a dollar. They would often lock the chametz up to stop the non-Jew from getting it. Postgim pushed back very hard against those things. So the, for the last several hundred years, the, the sale of chametz has seen a kind of push and pull between Poskim trying strenuously to give it some kind of character of a real sale. On the other hand, the, the sale has also evolved, you know, even in the time of the early Akronim, where it was done with intent to buy it back, it was done by individual, individual people, typically businesses, who had a lot of beer or a lot of chametz stock that they couldn't afford to sell. And it was done by individuals with a non-Jew they knew. Sometime in the 19th century, it became common to have community-wide mechiras chametzes in the forms that we find today with the rabbi. And then by the time we get to contemporary times in the 20th century, the 21st century, the sale of chametz has taken the form we know it today. It's devoid of any kind of real meaningful character. We sell boxes of Cheerios, we sell blios and kalim, we sell crumbs in the toaster, we sell uh, sandwiches that we forgot in the office. So the, the, the sale of chametz has become increasingly abstracted from a real-world kind of commercially meaningful sale into a very ritualized sale that we do today. And this has met with some opposition. The various posts can felt that the sales we do today are not really serious sales, and therefore they don't really accomplish their goal, which is to allow, in practice, the retention of chametz on Pesach. The truth is we're going to do tonight a group of tshuvas by and between two of the greatest poskim of the early 19th century, almost exact contemporaries. One is the Chassam Sofer, Ramosha Sofer, one of, one of the outstanding poskim of, of all time, one of the most famous poskim of all time. He was born in 1762 and died in 1839. He came originally from Germany, from Frankfurt, although he is famously associated with Hungary, with Pressburg, where he spent much of his career. The other postsake was also one of the Gedole Hadar of that time, <coughs> someone who was uh, held in very high esteem by his contemporaries, not as well known today. That is Rav Baruch Tumim Frankel. Rav Baruch Tumim Frankel was almost an exact contemporary. He was born in 1760. He was two years older than the Chassim Sofer. He died in 1827, 12 years earlier than the Chassim Sofer. He almost an exact contemporary. He, was, he spent much of his career in Moravia, in a city called Leipnik. Now, 
the main difference between their approaches to Mechiras Chametz is that the Chassam Sofer was a very enthusiastic supporter of Mechiras Chametz. He thought it was a, an excellent solution, and as we'll see, he even goes so far as to say that he admonishes anyone who criticizes the sale, who argues that it's uh, <coughs> dubious, he says, he says uh, in a line that I bolded on the handouts, he says, Hamachira gemurahu, the Mechira is an absolutely valid sale, Anyone who criticizes, anyone who casts aspersions on the sale is worthy of being, being uh, reprimanded, being uh, slapped down because it is a bona fide halachic sale. Opposed to the Chassam Sofer, however, was his distinguished contemporary, Rabbi Baruch Frankel. We'll see how their respective positions emerge from the various chuvas. Rabbi Baruch Frankel did exactly what the Chassam Sofer says nobody should do, he was mafakfeik on the sale of Mechiras Chametz. He goes so far, in one of his letters to the Chassam Sofer, he goes so far as to say that uh, he's proud of himself. He says, Taisi I, I will get schar, he says. I deserve schar. I will be rewarded by heaven. Shemiyom omdi al daiti. From when I came of age, from when I became aware and gained an understanding of the, of the situation, he says, Ani ken nazir mishtiyas yayin v'sheicher shel Yisrael, I'm like a Nazir in that I refrain from drinking any wine. He meant, he meant I think, uh, spirits. He meant uh, liquors that were made from grain. And beer, which is, of course, made from barley of a Jew that came from before Pesach, because they rely on the sale. And I don't, I'm, not convinced, uh, I'm not convinced by the sale. So he did exactly what the Chassam Sofer says we should not do. He was Mephachfeik on the sale. The most famous opponent of the sale was another near contemporary of these acronym, the Gona Vilna. The Gona Vilna doesn't really discuss it in his, uh, in his first-hand writings, but in the writings of his Talmidim, they report that the Gona strongly opposed the sales, and he also would not drink, uh, he, wouldn't, he, he wouldn't eat comments that were sold on Pesach. But tonight we're going to focus on the chuvas of these great Gaonim, the chuvas they wrote in general, chuvas to each other, and a picture will emerge what the, the arguments they make and the points they make are actually representative of much of the 500 years of literature of the Achronim on Mechir Hametz. Their chuvas will give us a window, a snapshot, into how the Achronim looked at Mechir Hametz. So beginning with the Chassam Sofer. So first I have just a small paragraph here from one of his chuvas. It's almost a parenthetical point in the chuva. He, he notes in the end of a longer chuva, he says, Mechir Hametz is very complicated. There are a lot of pitfalls and gotchas, kama ikuli upshure. Every rav, he says, every posek, every rav, he says, is mchuyev, is obligated to. Every year, he says, on Shabbos HaGadol, he has to teach and educate his, his parishioners, his kehila, on the proper way to sell chametz, the proper way to draft the shtar, the proper way to make the kinyanim. People point out that it wasn't quite standardized at that time. The Sofer is very proud that he did standardize in his community. In our community, he says, Everyone sells based on a star that, that, I, that I devised. We'll see more about this in his second shuva. But it, it was becoming standardized, but it was not so standardized, and the people still did the mechira themselves. Apparently they used a star that was drafted by the Chassam Sofer, but they would still do the sale themselves. That's why they had to know the halachas. Today, you don't have to know anything. You go to the rabbi, you go to the website this year, and you click on whatever it says click on, and the rabbi does not feel it's his duty to educate you in detail, because he's doing the sale. You just have to under, follow some basic rules, and the, 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 the legalities of it are handled by the rabbi. In the Chassam Sofer's time, this was not the practice yet. 
people sold their own chametz, but there was already beginning to be some centralization where there would be, uh, at least in his case, in some cities, they had standard documents for people to use to do the sales. Afil Hachi says, even though we have a standard document, I warn them, I caution them about the mistakes that can happen, and I teach them every year. He says, this is the correct thing to do. And now the Chassim Sofer has a remarkably sarcastic and bitter uh, aside here. He says, however, he says, unfortunately, the Rabbanim, instead of doing something useful in their Shabbos HaGadol Drasha, like teaching people the laws of Mechiras Chametz, instead, they teach some of the laws in Bav Metziah about the halachas of a custodian who gives property to another custodian when the first custodian is liable for the loss of the property in the, in the hands of the second custodian. A very important sugya. It's, it's a critical sugya in Chash Mishpat that comes up all the time, but the Chasim Sofer feels that this is not the time and the place for that. The Rabbanim right before Pesach should be educating their, their communities about, about things that are practical and relevant like Mechiras Chametz. He says, in, Hagam, the, the, in those communities where the Rav is not educating them, people just do whatever they want. The situation is more problematic. He goes on and he makes the point that he's trying to make. All right, that's his parenthetical aside in the first tshuva. His second tshuva was, he begins his tshuva by saying, I promised, he says, Nadarti Ashalema, I promised you, he tells his correspondent, and I'll fulfill my promise. You asked me to explain to you in general the, the theory and the rules of Mechiras Chametz, L'sadar Dine Mechiras Yisrael and Nachri, to avoid the Isra of Chametz and other Yisurim also, Melach Shabbos, it is a similar procedure that people follow, not as common as Mechiras Chametz, but people who have businesses that operate on Shabbos. So that, that's a problem. You can't have your business operate on Shabbos, even if non-Jews are doing the business. You have to sell the business. There are certain ways to sell the business. It's a similar to Mechiras Chametz. It's a legal mechanism to avoid this, or so, and it has similar rules. So the Chassam Sefer says he's going to explain some of the theory and the practice of these sales. So he has a chuvi, talks about various aspects of it. In terms of the practical, concrete guidance he gives, he writes, The custom in all the dispersed communities of Israel, they sell chametz to a non-Jew hamakiro, someone they know, someone they trust, and the non-Jew, of course, as we know, returns the chametz, sells it back after Pesach. Chassam Sarfer says, You do have to sell the chametz properly, but you have, to have, you have to give cash, he says, and you have to have Meshicha, he has to, he has to take the chametz and physically move it into his house. This is, of course, not something we do. Our boxes of Cheerios and cases of beer and warehouses full of cookies stay exactly where they are. The, the non-Jew does not take physical possession. Chassam Sarfer will get to that in a moment. Ideally, he says, a non-Jew would take physical possession. He has to bear responsibility for loss. If anything goes wrong, then he, then, then he still has to pay you the value, and he just writes it off. Once you've done a full-blown sale with physical possession, and the buyer accepting responsibility, so then, the, as a second transaction, the Jew can say, you know what? I'll accept liability for the chametz. If anything goes wrong, I'll, I'll indemnify you against loss. That's okay, because the chametz now belongs to the non-Jew. It's in the, it's in the premises of the non-Jew. That's okay also. However, it has to be two different stages, he says. The initial sale has to have no strings attached. It has to be a full-blown sale where all responsibility, at least in this initial stage, shifts to the non-Jew. 
And also he says, an important halacha, v'gam yashum ha-chametz b'jmei shavya, the chametz has to be assessed at its fair price. If you sell it to him at an unrealistic price, that's oh no, that, that, that can uh, void a transaction according to halacha. We, of course, do not do this. We do not typically assess the chametz that we sell to the non-Jew. And this was a later development of other poskim. They said, again, the way we do it today, it's not practical. There are so many different people, and most of them have you know, half-open boxes and a case here and a bottle of beer over there. So what we do is we use a different mechanism, a, a, another legal twist, in the early days of Mechiris Chametz, they sometimes used to just sell it for a nominal amount, like a dollar. As I said earlier, that post can rejected because they said, that's a joke, that, that's not a sale. So what we do today is that we say the Chametz is being sold to the non-Jew for its fair market value. And this fair market value, we have not yet determined it. We will determine it when you take delivery, we tell the non-Jew, when you hypothetically, theoretically take delivery sometime after Pesach, we will then assess how much it was worth, how much it was worth now. We have to do a retroactive assessment of how much it was worth at the time of the sale. In practice, we never do that because in practice, the non-Jew always chooses to sell it back to us after Pesach. But if he wouldn't, if he would actually not sell it back and then we have to take possession of it, we would then have to do an actual assessment and the assessment will be a fair assessment. That's what we do today. But at the Chassam Sofer's time, it was, it was simpler. You should actually sell the chametz for a dollar amount for uh, whatever currency he used for a uh, for a, for a for a fair of Reichtail or whatever it was for a, for a fair mark for a fair market value a fairly assessed value some post can say you should sell it for a few percent less than the fair market value to make the sale more realistic if you know, if he wants to pay fair market value he can go to Walmart he can go to a wholesaler he doesn't need you in order to make it a realistic sale why is he buying from you the answer is he's getting a discount he's getting uh, 3% off the the fair market value of all the Cheerios and beer all right but basically, the, the consensus today is the chametz should be sold for the fair market value. Either you actually put a dollar figure, a, a realistic and reasonable dollar figure up front, or you just say, at its fair market price, which will be calculated later. And what about taking physical possession, he says, If you can't do that, doing that would be the ideal for various reasons. But if you can't do that, then you rent the premises to the non-Jew for the duration of Pesach, plus a margin on each end. And then, you, in other words, the reason you want to do Mashiach is for a couple of reasons. One reason is, the reason you want the non-Jew to take physical possession, first of all, is because that's one of the Kinyanim. Taking the Chametz, into your, taking movable property, personal property, into your possession is a form of Kinyan. That's a way of acquiring property. And B, you don't want the non-Jew to have property in your Rishos on Pesach. So normally, ideally, he takes it out and keeps it in his house. If he can't do that, then he should rent the premises in which the chametz is located, which is what we still do today, typically. And what that accomplishes is that's also a Kenyan of the chametz. That's called Kenyan Agav. We'll touch on this later. Mocher chametz Agav Schiris Karka. There's a rule that movable property, metaltalim, personal property, can be acquired in a package deal. We call that Kenyan Agav via the sale of real property. And the sale of real property is affected by either cash or star, which is easier. You don't need to take physical possession of it. And, uh, so these are the technical rules of how it should be done. And this largely resembles the Mechira we do today, with the one major exception, as I said, that we typically don't put an actual dollar figure on the Chametz up front. Now he talks about the standardization, the, the regularization of the sale. He writes, Frankfurt Damain. In Frankfurt, where he hailed from, 
Hidfist, he says his uh, his great teacher, he said, Mori Varabi Hagon Bal Hafla is at Salar. Pinchas Horowitz, the author of the Sefer Hafla, Sefer Amikna, one of the great postkim of the previous generation, he established a Nusach Shtar Belashen Kodesh, a Shtar in Hebrew. We'll discuss the language of the Shtar a little bit later. Vachrav Mori Varabi Hagon Rav Nassan Adler, Katz, his other great Rebbe, Rabbi Nassan Adler, also devised a Shtar with uh, some, some variations. And who nidfas for kuntras asma? That was printed. He says vaniti kanti. I also he says I constructed a nusach of the star blush and Ashkenaz. My version was in German. We'll discuss the significance of that later. But my version was in German or Yiddish. He says my version was in German. And it's also printed by a, by a man named Rabbi Bear Frank in the in the in, in a Viennese Haggadah in a Seder Haggadah Bevin, a Viennese edition of the Haggadah. Furthermore, he says, another standard edition of the Shtar, he says, you can find in Basin Sedek of Prague, the, the Basin of the community of Prague. Also, they, they, they have another variation that was printed in the Haggadah of Prague. So by his time, by the generation or two before him, it was already becoming somewhat standardized that instead of every Balabayas drafting his own Shtar, which was what was done uh, a couple hundred years earlier, the Bateidin were already starting, the community, the various Rabbanim and Bateidin, we're already starting to issue standard documents, which again is something which is similar to what we do today, with the, with the one major difference that it was not done by the Rav. It was, the Mechiras Chametz was still done by individuals. Some help was provided in the sense of a standard standard form and so on, but the Mechiras was still done individually. That changed in the, in the mid-19th century. But in this early 19th century, 18th century, the custom was, it was beginning to become standardized with standard shtaris, but it was still done by individuals. Now he writes that line, I, said, I quoted earlier, the Cholap and Shavin, even though there are variations in all these Shtaris, but the, the common denominator, the, what everyone accepts, he says, all these great Gedolim, Rapinchas Horowitz, Ramnas and Adler, the Dayanim of Prague, what they all accept is, Hamachira Gemurahu, V'chal Hamafakfeik, Roy Ligara. The sale is absolutely valid. Anyone who challenges it is worthy of being reprimanded. He has more to say on the general topic. And then he quotes a fascinating story. He says, when the, when the, when the Gon, Reb Baruch Frankel, the, the Av Basin of Leipnik, was still alive, this must have been toward the end of the Chassam Sofer's life, as I mentioned, he outlived the Reb Baruch Frankel by about 12 years, from 1827 to 1839. So this chuva this must have been written in that period. So he says, when Reb Baruch Frankel was still alive, there was, a, there was an episode where Malshinim, Troublemakers, informers, informed on the Jewish on the Jewish community, Eitzelsari Hamadina de Merin. In the in the region of Merin, they, they informed the they informed the government that the Jews were engaging in criminal activity. What was the criminal activity? The Jews were selling chametz without stamps, Chosim Hakira, official stamps of the government. Now, stamp here, of course, does not mean postage stamps, does not mean the 50 cent or whatever it is today, the, the stamps that we put on mail. The stamps here mean what they meant in the American Revolution, in the context of the Stamp Act of 1775 and so on. Stamps were a form of tax. They were a revenue-generating mechanism of the government that if you wanted to do various types of legal documents, you needed to buy stamp paper, which was essentially you paid a tax for it. It wasn't 50 cents either. I think it was more substantial. We wouldn't have had a revolution about it had it been uh, the cost of postage stamps. So the, 
this was a European custom. We Americans didn't like it much, but this was a uh, apparently a common European a common European European form of tax uh, of uh, revenue raising. And this was true in these Central European countries that if you wanted to execute a legal document, a contract, you had to have stamped paper; otherwise, you were breaking the law, tax avoidance. So these troublemakers reported to the the, the government that the Jews are engaged in tax fraud, in criminal activity, because they're selling chametz without paying the stamp tax. So, when the matter came before the chassid, the, the czar, the kaiser, he said, no problem, he said, the Jews are fine, nothing wrong. Why? He said, this is not business, he said. We know what the Jews are doing. They're not engaged in commercial activity here by selling their chametz. Elainian das religion. It is a matter of religion. It's a ritual sale, he says. Therefore, there is no chiv shtemple, he says. There's no need to buy a stamp. That was the gracious and tolerant ruling of the, of the Kaiser. Now, Rabarak Frankel was not happy about this. Despite the fact that the Kaiser was trying to be nice, Rabarak Frankel was very concerned, or moderately concerned. He said... The Chetim Sofer reports this, that, that this is a story that happened in Rabarak Frankel's time. Rabarak Frankel was unhappy. He said he had a ktsas suffolk, belayif hagon zatzel. He wasn't, uh, he was a little nervous now, he said, because mashma medinat malchusa, pasal ashtarahu. He understood the government's position to be that they recognized the, the sale of chametz as a purely ritual transaction that had no legal validity, and that's why they were not requiring stamps. Says Rabarak Frankel, wait a second. If the government does not recognize our, uh, our sales as valid, then we have a problem here, because the sale has to be valid. It's not a religious act. It's a commercial act. It has to be a valid sale. If the government has decided that the sale is not valid, maybe we're in big trouble. So, he had a suffix about this. Says the Chassam Sofer, I do not agree. I think he was not correct. I think there's nothing to worry about. Because I think the star is absolutely kosher. It's kosher under Jewish law. It's a valid star. In my legal opinion, the Chassam Sofer said, this is a valid, legally enforceable contract in European law as well. However, if they ever try to enforce the contract, if they ever, the sale ever actually goes through and they don't reverse it after Pesach, then they're going to have to pay the stamp. What does the, the Kaiser mean when he tells us that we don't need to pay stamp tax? Achakira, he says, a Kaiser Yaramodo that stands for, may he be exalted. Bechasto v'yashranuso. In his great Hasidus and integrity, his Yashras, he says, he's telling us that I don't choose to tax these kinds of transactions. Not all transactions are subject to tax. and The, the, the tax laws are pretty complicated. Taxes make all kinds of distinctions between which transactions are subject to tax, how much tax they're subject to, just because the government chooses not to tax a certain type of transaction, that doesn't mean it's not a valid transaction. Certain types of transactions for personal use, for, for, non, you know, for non-commercial, non-commercial purposes, even though the government recognizes them as being legal, the government chooses not to tax them because the government knows that they're likely to be reversed. So the government chooses not to, not to impose such a tax. But, uh, but since that's the purpose, he says, it doesn't mean that the government doesn't recognize the transaction. It just means that they choose not to tax these transactions. So that, that was the Chassam Sofer's position. Now, it emerges that both Rabar Frankel and the Chassam Sofer seem to agree that a sale that would not be legally recognized by the government, would not be recognized as legally valid, would be problematic. Rabar Frankel said that 
uh, if they're not charging stamp tax, that means it's not valid. Hasim Sarfer says, in principle, you're right. If, they, if the government would say this is not a valid transaction, he seems to agree, in principle, that would be a problem. He says, that's not what they mean. This is a valid transaction. They just choose not to tax it. But both these postkims seem to be assuming that there, is a real, that there is a very serious argument, a credible argument, that if there is a transaction that is not valid according to prevailing law, that would actually be a real problem with Mechir Eschametz. And this is actually something that was extensively debated in the 19th century. There were two reasons why the postkim were concerned that Mechir Eschametz was not legally valid. Again, I'm no expert in uh, secular law in general, certainly not European, 19th century European law. But there were two reasons that all the postkim, many postkim discuss why the Mechir Eschametz might not be valid under prevailing law. One of them was this issue of the stamp. The other issue was language. Unlike modern American law, in which a contract can be written in any language you want, there's no such thing as an official language, as long as the parties understand the language of the contract, that's a perfectly valid, legally valid contract. European countries often had an official language, and the law said that a contract that is not drafted in the official language, typically German or Russian or something like that, would not be valid. If the Jews wrote a shtar in Hebrew or maybe Yiddish, it would not necessarily be valid. It would not often not be valid according to the postkim in under local law because it was not written in the not written in the original language. Not written in the na- official national language. So this is something that these two points, the stamp tax and the and the official language problem, were were two concerns that were discussed by many postkim. Now, as we said, Rebarach Frankel and the and Chassim Sofer both seem to agree, at least in principle, that a transaction that is actually not valid under prevailing law would not be a valid Mechir Aschametz. Many Akronim disagree. One of, the, one, of the notable, one of the notable proponents of the view that it doesn't matter if the Mechir Aschametz is valid under secular law, as long as it's valid under Jewish law, was actually Rebarach Frankel's own son-in-law. Rebarach Frankel's son-in-law was also one of the most illustrious postkim of the early to mid-19th century. He was Rav Chaim Halberstam, the great Hasidic postsek, the author of the Tshuva's Divrei Chaim. So the Divrei Chaim has a question about the language. Someone asked him that you have a Shtar Mechir Aschametz written in Lashon Kodesh. Maybe it shouldn't work because the law says that no Shtar that's written in, uh, in Lashon Kodesh or Yiddish is going to work, except unless it's written in German. So he says, the Divrei Chaim says, the Iker is that we follow the halacha, that Mechir Eschametz is a, is a halacha, and it follows, the, it follows the civil law of the Torah, Bein Lahakel, Bein Lahachmer, we follow our law as to whether the Shtar is valid, not the government's law. It doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter whether they consider it a valid Shtar, it matters that we consider it a valid Shtar according to Torah law, and we do. So that's all that counts. We don't care if the government doesn't consider it valid. And then he says, he says, you have to, you have to say that, because he brings up the issue with the stamp, the same issue that Rebarak Frankel was concerned with. He says, forget the language, he says. We don't pay the stamp tax. We don't put the stamps on our documents, he says. So he says, all the courts, he says, will not enforce such a star, will not uh, recognize such a star. He says, you don't believe me? He says, yes, shall know. He tells his correspondent, ask, he says. Ask, and you'll, you'll find out. Uh, ask people who know, and you'll see that that's what the law is, that, that a star without a stamp is not valid. So how does our sale work, he says. If it doesn't work in their law, if that's a problem, then we're, then we're done, he says. Until we stop paying stamp tax, all our mechira summits is not valid. So, so unlike the Chassam Sofer, who felt that 
they do recognize it, they just choose not to tax it. Unlike Rabarak Frankel, who felt that it might really be a problem, Divrechaim says that, no, the halacha is, we don't care whether they consider it a valid sale or not, all we care is that it is valid al in Torah, and the same thing applies for the language, it doesn't matter if it's in German or Lush and Kodesh, he, he goes on to say you should Dafka not write it in, in, in German, he says, he explains the Rabbanim weren't familiar with German and trying to draft a contract in a language that you're not fluent in is a recipe for disaster, he says, it's much more, uh, it's much more correct, he says, to write it in a language you understand, and uh, give up the, the, the issue of legal validity, he says, that's the minhag. The minhag was to write it in Jewish languages, Hebrew or Yiddish, he says, lo nishnem avaseinu, we should follow the minhag, and not lo nishana, we should not deviate from our Masara. Now he notes, imki mori chamizal, my father-in-law, he says, even though I, I acknowledge, he says, my, my illustrious father-in-law, that's Baruch Tumum Frankel, he says, he used to write it in German, noag lichto beloshen ashkenaz, Again, that's Lushitase a little bit, as we just saw. As reported by, we still haven't seen his own tshuvas yet, we'll get to that soon, but as we saw in the Chasim Sofer, that, that Rabbaruch Tumim Frankel was concerned that, the, that if it doesn't have a stamp, it's not valid. Similarly, reports his son-in-law, Rav Chaim Halberstam, he was also concerned that if it's not written in the official language, it's also not valid. So he actually would do his star in Ashkenaz, in German, Racy says he had very rough in mode biado. He wasn't so uh, he wasn't so convinced about this. It was he was tentative. It's true he did write it in German, but it wasn't something he was uh, absolutely convinced about. So the Chaim says he's willing to he's willing to to, to to take a stand and say no, nope, it's fine. You can write it in Hebrew. It's better to write it in Hebrew. So that's his position. So with regard to the stamp, as I've been saying, we have three positions. We have the position that an unstamped contract is. Invalid al Alacha, because it's not valid legally. We have the position of the Divrechaim, it doesn't matter if it's valid legally, we don't care as long as it's valid according to Dentorah. And then we have the Chasim Sofer's in between position that in principle it has to be valid legally, but a non stamped paper is valid legally. They just choose not to impose the stamp tax. A similar position to the Chasim Sofer appears in another towering postic of that time. Rabbi Avram David uh, Warman, the Av Basin of Bachach best known as the Eishel Avram. He was the author of a number of commentaries on Shulchan Aruch, Eishel Avram, Kesef Kedashim, Eishel Avram, Kesef Kedashim, Ezer Mikodesh, and uh, Das Kedoshim. He was uh, one one of the outstanding posts of the 20th century as well. He has a note, it's not not in his own sefer, it's a note in in his uh, introductory note to the sefer, Neta Shashuim. So he writes, he 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 writes a few miscellaneous halachas that he thinks are important to... uh, to, to put on record, he says, he says, he also mentions the same problem that arose in the Rabara Frankel's time, the, the problem of the stamp. He says, and also the, the Dina de Malchusi says, when they had the stamp laws, he says that, that, like, that they chose not to impose the stamp on Mechira Schamet's contracts, he says. So, and he was worried also, he raises the question, maybe that means they don't recognize it as valid. So he takes a position very similar to the Chasim Sofer. In principle, he says, in principle, he says that the Chesam Sofer would, you know, it might be a problem. But in practice, he says that's, that's not what the government means. He says when the government chooses not to impose a stamp tax on Mechir Chametz, he says that's because for a, for a short-term sale, for a seven-day sale that, that's expected to be reversed, he says, they choose not to impose a stamp, not to impose the requirement of the stamp. And, and that, that doesn't mean that they're, uh, that they're reversing the sale. It doesn't mean that they're avoiding the sale. 
So Mela, we're, we're safe, he says, the fact that they're not taxing us, we'll take it, but it doesn't mean that the sale is not valid. That's a position roughly analogous to the Chassam Sofer, that in principle it might be an issue. In practice, it's not an issue because all they mean to say is that they choose not to tax it, not that they do not recognize the sale as valid. So we've seen that Rebarktum and Frankel so far is the, is, the, is the one holdout who has these various problems with Mechiras Chametz. He was concerned about the stamps. He, was, he made sure to write his star in German. Now we're going to turn to Rebarach Tuman Frankel's own responsa in his Sefer Ateres Chachamim, in which he had an extended, an extended correspondence, an extended debate with the Chassam Sofer. That it, was not a it was not written initially about any one particular case, so they, the Chassam Sofer wrote various, uh, various points in halacha, a, a number of uh, somewhat related, some, some, some miscellaneous points in halacha. Rebarach Frankel Tuman engaged him on, the, on these various points, and they had a correspondence going, going on for four different letters, two by Rabarach Tumum Frankel, two by the Chassam Sofer, where they went back and forth on a number of issues. One of them was, one of them turned out to be the validity of Mechiras Chametz. This obviously took place before the tshuva of the Chassam Sofer I mentioned earlier, in which he says that Rabarach Frankel was no longer living. So these tshuvas obviously were written earlier, it's striking that the Chassam Sofer doesn't acknowledge them when he says anyone who's mafachvik on mechiras chametz is worthy of being reprimanded. He, he, he doesn't mention that, Rebarak, that his own correspondent, the great Rebarak Frankel Tumim, was mafachvik. But in any event, this was, a, this was an extended uh, written debate between these two great Kedolim, in which one of the points under debate was how to construe our mechiras chametz and how uh, reliable is it to begin with. So the discussion begins with a tshuva by Rav Baruch Tumim Frankel. He's writing to the Chassam Sofer. He quote, he's writing to Ramosha, the Av based in a Pressburg, at the Gon, Ramosha, Av based in a Pressburg, and he quotes something the Chassam Sofer wrote to him. I'm not sure if we have this letter, but the Chassam Sofer, you see, he quotes from the Chassam Sofer's letter to him. One of his points was that the Chassam Sofer is unhappy with a passage in the Sefer Mekar Chaim. Mekar Chaim, this Mekar Chaim was written by Rav Yaakov of Lisa, the author of the Nesivas, another outstanding postic of that time, who wrote a, a little bit earlier also, who wrote a number of classic, classic works on Halacha, and Arachaim, and Yardeh, and Chosh Mishpat, Ebenezer. He wrote the Nesivas of Mishpat, and Chosh Mishpat, the Beis Yaakov, and Taras Gitten, and Ebenezer. He wrote the Mekar Chaim, and Halchas Pesach. He wrote the Chavaz Das, and Yardeh, one of the, also one of the towering postkim of two centuries ago. So the Makar Chaim is discussing the question of, we mentioned earlier, one of the ways in which the non-Jew acquires chametz is via the Kenyan Agav, that by, by purchasing or renting the, the property in which the chametz is, or any other property, he can also acquire a, the chametz. It, it comes along as a package deal. The concept of a package deal of movable property with real estate, that's called Kenyan Agav. Now the Makar Chaim says that Agav is not a Kenyan Daraisa. It doesn't say it anywhere in Chumash. It's learned from Sukkim elsewhere in Nach, but it's not in the Chumash. Therefore, Makar Chaim, like many other poskim, says it's only a Kenyan Drabanan. How can a Kenyan Drabanan work for Chametz? Chametz is a Din Daraisa. So there's a vast literature about whether Kenyanim of Drabanan work for Mitzvah Daraisa. We're not going to get into that tonight. But Makar Chaim is concerned about this. He says, how can we do a Kenyan Agav for Chametz, which is a question of a Daraisa? So he says, this bitl chametz, this bitl chametz. You already were mavatal chametz. Once you said kol chamira, you did, you did bitl. 
Midaraisa, you're fine. The Gemara says, Midaraisa, Bittl Baal Masagi. Not relying on Bittl is only a din to Rabbanan. The Rabbanan didn't want you to rely on Bittl for various reasons. Therefore, for that, you can rely on Kininaga, because once you've done Bittl, all you have left upon you is a, <coughs> is a rabbinic obligation. And for that, Kininaga, which is a rabbinic Kinian, is good. Kinian, Kinian Rabbanan works for a rabbinic obligation. That was what Makar Chaim wrote in his Sefer. Says the Chasim Sofer in a letter to Rabbarov Tumum Frankel, Dvarov Tumum. This does not make any sense, he says, because Bittel does not work on any chametz that you're selling. Bittel only works on chametz that you're not selling. If you, lo- if you forgot some chametz, if you left it on your, in your shelf and forgot to sell it, before Mechirat's chametz was standard, that's what Bittel is for. Any chametz that you're selling, you're not mavatal, you're selling it. It belongs to the non-Jew, and you're going to buy it back from him, hopefully after Pesach, or he'll pay you for it after Pesach. You're not mavatal the chametz that you sell. Therefore, the Chasam Sofer, and this position is also the position of many other acronym, they say, Beetle does not apply to the chametz that you sell. Therefore, the sale had better be good. These poskim say, the Chasam Sofer and many others say, you better make sure your sale is good. It better work as a midaraisa because Beetle only applies to chametz you don't sell. Any chametz you do sell is not covered by the Beetle. And all you have to save you from the Isurim of owning that Chametz, the only thing standing be you, between you and Isurim Daraisa is the validity of the Mechira. Therefore, the Chasam Sofer's position is you better make sure the Mechira is good. At least that's his initial position here, it seems to be, because, because Bittel does not apply, and the Mechira had better stand on its own as a 100% valid Mechira. On that, Rabarthum and Frankel responded to the Chasam Sofer, he said, that... Mekarchayim didn't make this up, he says. This goes back to much earlier Achronim. And he quotes a passage in the Tuvah Ashar, per- perhaps the most famous, one of the most famous passages on Mechiras Chametz. Mechiras Chametz was one of the outstanding early Achronim who wrote about Mechiras Chametz. And he wrote as follows. He wrote that Mechiras Chametz is really a harama. Mechiras Chametz, between me, you, and the lamppost, he says, the sale is a legal fiction. It's a harama. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a farce. It, it's not it's hard to translate harama, a trick, a, uh, a, a scheme, he says. It's not really a... It, 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 it's legally very dubious, he says. Therefore, the Tvor Shar says, Mechiras Chametz is... Forget the question of Kenin Agav, raised by the Makar Chaim. Mechiras Chametz cannot save you from an Isser Daraisa. It's a harama, he says. Harama is not good enough to save you from an Isser Daraisa. He says, harama can only work if you're left with an Isser Drabanan. Rabbinic Isurim, even though they're serious, Rabbanon allow you to, to, to rely on Haramas to avoid their Isurim, but not when you're faced with Nisr Daraisa. So how on earth can you rely on Mechiras Chametz for the sale of Chametz, which is Nisr Daraisa? Says it to Ashar, essentially the same thing as the Makar Chaim, that Midaraisa you have Bittel anyway, Midaraisa, anyway you're doing Bittel, so Midaraisa there's no Isur, the, the only Isur left is Midrabanon, they don't want you to rely on Bittel, for that you can rely on a Harama. But in the Chinami, the Tuashar says that Mechiras Chametz is a harama. It's not really a valid, it's not such a valid sale. It's, it, it definitely is something of a legal fiction. And therefore, it only works if you're dealing with the Surim Drabanan, which is post-Bittal. It does not work if you're dealing with an Issa Daraisa, says Rav Baruch Tumum Frankel. So the Tuashar is basically a, a, a solid precedent for the Makar Chaim that we do say Bittal, even with regard to the Chametz you're selling. That's why the Mechiras Chametz doesn't have to be so valid. That's why you can use Kenin Agav, which is only rabbinic. That's why you can use a sale, which is only a Harama, because the, anyway, you're relying on Bittal. So this is already the seed. We already see the seed of 
why Rabarak Tumum Frankel is not going to be so happy with the with not going to be so happy with the Mechiras Chametz because he's 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 accepting and he's endorsing the position of the Tuashar that Mechiras Chametz is a harama. People call it a legal fiction. It essentially is, he says. It's a, it's a legal fiction which is somewhat valid lahalacha. It works for drabanans, doesn't work for daraisa, and therefore that's the position of the Rebarak Tumor Frankel. The Chuva actually is dated. He says this was written in the year Tafkuf Ayin Zayin, which is the, which is the year uh, 1817, and, uh, which was, you know, again, about a decade before he passed away. And therefore... And therefore, this was, this was his position, he says. And then he, at the end of several pages of various, various comments to the Chazim Sofer, he writes, I have a lot more to say. But I don't want to bother you so much, he says, that, uh, to bother you by my endless, uh, endless writing, he says. Also, I'm not feeling well. I have, I have an eye ache, and therefore I'm going to stop, he says. And if, if, if Hashem gives me a refuah shlema, maybe I'll return to some of these issues. So this is this was his this was Rebarach Tumim Frankel's position endorsing the positions of the Tuashar and the Makar Chaim. The Mechiris Chametz is a harama. So far, he hasn't said that it doesn't work, but he says it's a harama. And let's not take it too far. It can only and it makes sense that it can only work for an Isidrabanan. And that's why you, we have to make sure that the Bittel covers the Mechira and and Bittel covers the Chametz that you sell. And the Mechira is only going to be valid after Bittel has already taken effect on a Daraisalem. Then he reports that the Chassam Sofer wrote back to him a tshuva that he printed in his safe in his sefer as well. The Chassam Sofer's tshuva deals with all the different points they discussed, but the one that's relevant to us is that the Rebarktum and Frankel endorsed the view that all the chametz, including the chametz that you sell, is covered by the beetle, and that's why the mechira can work because it's anyway covered by the beetle. So Chassam Sofer says, "I also accept that." That uh, Shita, to some extent, he explains how he interprets this, this doctrine. But then he takes issue with Rav Baruch Frankel's language. Anitama, he says, Milosh Nagon, your language, the language of, uh, of you, he says. You say, Shemocher derech harama, you call Mechira Shametz harama, and you call it Mechira Gerua, an inferior sale, it can't solve Balyera. You keep referring, he says, Kafal Vashilesh, you keep referring to Mechira Shametz, as a legal fiction, as a harama, as dubious, as, uh, as a somewhat uh, problematic sale, he says. And he says, he says but uh, he, he, the Chamsofer is not happy with that. He says that, he says, he, 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 he takes issue with that. And he says, I'm not at all happy with your, with your, uh, he says, if, if it's taka harama, it wouldn't work at all. He says, he quotes a machza shekel, who was very, um, he quotes a Shekel, who's who, 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 who's unhappy with the with, with the sale with, with the bitl of the sale. His argument is a little tricky. You have to read his argument inside. But he's not happy with Roberto Frankel's characterization of the sale as a harama. As you keep calling it this harama and mechira gerua. Really, as he said in his in his other tshuva, I think it's a very good sale. It's a, it's a mechira gemura. Well, you, you're calling it a harama. I'm not happy with that at all. So finally, Roberto Frankel responds to him in the last tshuva in this sequence of letters. Finally, he lays out all his cards on the table. Finally, he is completely candid. He says, Chasam Sofer, Ramosha, he says, of Pressburg, you're complaining to me, he said, that I called it a harama. You're upset that I keep uh, denigrating Mechiras Chamas and calling it a harama. What do you want from me, he says. Lo alai tulunasur damar. Your quarrel is not with me, he says. 
The Tuashar said that, he said. The Tuashar said it's a harama. We've been discussing the Tuashar, he says. You and I have been discussing the Tuashar, and the Tuashar said it's a harama. And it only works after Bittal, he says. So, but however you understand his logic of the interplay of Bittal and Mechira, the Tuashar says very clearly it's a harama, and it only works because it's Drabanan post Bittal, he says. He tells you the Mechira's comment is, uh, is not really valid, Midaraisa. So all I'm doing is echoing his position. Is, um, is that, and, many, and many tshuva say that, many svarim say that, he says, the Mechira's chametz, many, many disagree, but also, but many, many svarim say the Mechira's chametz is a harama. It's not, it's not a good Mechira Midaraisa. And then he says further, he says, really, it's very difficult to understand how it works at all, based on that, he says. Because even though we have a rule, we have a classic legal rule, dvarim shebelev, enam dvarim, if a person says something or writes something and then tells Basin, but I meant something else, I meant uh, a qualifier, I meant, uh, I meant to interpret it differently, we tell him, doesn't work that way. If you say something, if you write something, we, the halacha follows what you said. Dvarim shebelev, enam dvarim, what you thought, what you intended, what you meant, uh, to, how you meant to interpret it, that's not our affair. What you said is what is valid. However, he says, the one great exception to that is umdana. If it's clear, if, if, if it's clear we, we know what you meant, if everyone knows what you meant, if it's perfectly clear what you really meant, we do follow that. You, it doesn't matter if you, if you personally had an idiosyncratic interpretation, but if you said X and you meant Y and it's clear to everyone that when everyone says, anyone who says X means Y in this context, then we follow that. That's uh, established halacha, going back to the Gemara. Ufechi ha'gavna, in such a case where your true intentions are clear, gam dvarim shebelev dvarim then what you meant, if, if, if your heart is transparent, if we know exactly what you're thinking and what you mean, that it, then that has halachic validity as well. And therefore he says, and therefore he says, even if you're going to try to argue, that first of all he's saying, it, it, it's clear the Jew doesn't really mean to sell the chametz. It's only a harama. And even if you're going to say, no, because the Jew is a God-fearing Jew, and he knows how, how serious the Isra Bal is, even though he knows the sale looks like a formality, he knows he has to really mean it to avoid the Isra Bal he says. But look at it from the non-Jewish perspective, he says. You're selling it to some, uh, some poor, lower-class non-Jew, a servant, he says. He really means to buy it, he says. He doesn't have any Isra Bal He's not interested. He doesn't keep the Torah. Why, why does he mean this transaction? He knows, as far as he's concerned, the whole thing is, uh, is a ritual, he says. He doesn't really mean it. So the whole thing, he says, Mechiris Chametz is very much a harama. Even though you went through the motions, you said the words, you don't really mean it, he says. So up till now, in the previous tshuva, he says he's been, he's been working with the Tvushar. That, yeah, it's a harama, but harama works for Drabana. Now he's saying the truth is it doesn't work at all. The truth is, he says, it's a harama and it shouldn't really work at all. Now he says that line I, I quoted earlier in the introduction. Tasily, he says, I, uh, I'm proud of the fact that from when I came of age, I am like a Nazir I do not drink spirits and beer that Jews owned before Pesach, that they relied on Mechira, and the Mechira is very, very dubious, he says. And furthermore, I never wanted to participate in the whole discussion of the, of the finer points and the technicalities of Mechira Schametz, when they were all mekil because of the bittel, they, they all had this doctrine of the Tvoshar, that don't worry so much about it, we have bittel anyway, it's just Midrabana, we can be more lenient. Ki Ladaiti, he says, he says, Ladaiti, my opinion is that the Aflitz Tarufe Lochazi Abitl Shalamaman Bulidas, that you don't mean it, it's not even worth being Mitzarev to a bittel, to a, uh, to the, you, don't, you don't mean the bittel either, he says, and the, 
that he says there's no bitzel here. You're selling again. They weren't selling half-empty boxes of Cheerios. They were selling, they were selling warehouses full of beer. You don't mean to mevatel it. He says you don't. You don't mean to sell it. You don't mean to mevatel it. You don't mean anything. He says the whole thing is uh, is legal fiction on top of legal fiction. And he acknowledges that he didn't quite uh, show his cards in his first chuva. He says his first chuva. He indicated that he's willing to go with the tuashar's approach that bitel works midaraisa and the harama of mechira works midrabanan. He says, I, I suppressed this. I, I didn't, uh, I was diplomatic in my first tshuva. Why? I didn't want to say the tuashar is, uh, is engaged in uh, twisted legal reasoning, he says. I didn't want to say that. So I just let the tuashar go. But he says that you, you can rely on this hybrid between Bittel and Mechira, he says. But that the, the, and he says the Ikra Kula of the Mechira, that the reason it works is because of the, even though it's Arama, is because of the Bittal, he says. And Kol Yisrael Becheskas Kasher, Jews want to do the right thing. Jews are presumed to be Erlach, and certainly they mean to Mavatel, Belev Shalem, because of the Chiyuv. A Jew knows his obligation is to lose all his money, even if he had to just burn all his chametz, he would do it if that's what the Torah requires. Not to be over a Losasek. So the Tuashar's position is that, all right, the, he really, really means the Bittal, even though it uh, you know, beggars the imagination that a person would write off $50,000 of inventory, his, his, entire, his entire livelihood. He, again, Bittal is not a joke. Bittal means, I don't care about it. It's worthless. It's nothing. I, I'm not interested in this anymore. So it beggars the imagination, he says, a little bit to say that he really means that. And he winds up, Mi yitain, he says, playing off the Pasuk, where, the, where, where Hashem says wistfully, he wishes the Jews would always have this attitude of Yerushalayim and eagerness to hear the Dvar Hashem. They had at Sinai, he says, Mi yitain, he says, I wish, uh, I wish indeed, he says, Hayazel levavam b'sha'as ha-bitzel. Halavai, he says, when Jews do bitzel chametz, they, they, honest to goodness, have this uh, deep religious commitment that they are actually being mevatel or their chametz, and, the, and, and they really don't need it. So the bottom line is, this is the Tuashar's position in, this is the Rabarach Tumum Frankel's position in his final tshuva. The entire Mechira is very, very dubious. I will not rely on it, he says, because it's, uh, because of its uh, fictitious quality. You, you, can, you can try adding the Mechira to the, to the Bittal, as per the Tuashar. That's also very dubious, because Bittal, saying Bittal applies to the valuable chametz that you're selling, that's a very dubious assumption as well, he says. So I think the entire Mechiras Chametz is very, very dubious. Again, in, in, we have reports from his own son-in-law, the Divrechayim, that he used to write Shtaris of Mechiras Chametz, and in, in German. And we have reports from the Chatzim Sofer that apparently he was okay with Mechiras Chametz until the, the controversy over the stamps arose. So obviously, the, obviously his point is, as a personal Chumrah, he wouldn't use it, as he accepted it was the Minog of Klal Yisrael to sell the Chametz, so he went along with it. It, it's, it's probably not a coincidence, though, that because he held the whole thing rested on such uh, dubious foundations to begin with, he was much stricter than some of his contemporaries. When it came to the stamps, other postkim, Chasim Sofer said, no problem. His son-in-law, Divrechaim, said, no problem. And he said, uh, I think it might be a problem. When it came to the, when it came to the language, when it came to the language of the, of the contract, other Akronim said, no problem, write it in Hebrew, write it in Yiddish, don't worry about the law. And he said, no, I'm going to write it in German. So all this is of a piece. Presumably, he felt that Mechiras Chamet suffers from the character of Harama. The, we have to do as much as we can to try to buttress it and make it as meaningful and as 
realistic as we, as we actually can. And Im calls that he felt that it was still dubious, and that's why he personally would not eat chametz that was, drink chametz in his case, that was sold over Pesach. Chassam Sofer, in his final tshuva, written after Baruch Frankel, Baruch Tumah Frankel had passed away, says nobody should be mefachfikam mechiras chametz. He, he says that Baruch Tumah Frankel had a problem with the stamp. He doesn't acknowledge that in a letter addressed to him by Baruch Tumah Frankel, Baruch Tumah Frankel said, I don't like the whole mechiras chametz, I think it's a harama, I don't rely on a paklal. The Chassam Sofer diplomatically decided not to mention that entire correspondence and just said that his problem was with the stamp. But Lemaiser, Baruch Tumen Frankel, is not so well known, perhaps, but his position, he's one of the noteworthy, one of the most prominent of the skeptics against Mechir Eschametz. We mentioned earlier, the other is the Gona Vilna. The opposition of many people today, the, 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 the Chumrah of many people today, to avoid purchasing Chametz, to avoid consuming Chametz that was owned on Pesach, probably is influenced more by the Grah than by the than by Baruch Tumen Frankel, in Eretz Yisrael in particular, it is a very common chumrah among, um, among Bnei Torah, for sure, to avoid chametz that was sold on Pesach. Ad Kach, that you see all, at least when I was there a couple of decades ago, after Pesach you see all the products sold to Haredim, all have stickers saying things like, This product, these pretzels, this cookie, these were baked with, chum, with wheat that was ground after Pesach. If you know it wasn't ground until after Pesach, you can be reasonably sure that it wasn't uh, chametz. If it was ground before Pesach, who knows who owned it, whether water came in contact with it. This is a very common chumrah in, in, in Yerushalayim, probably influenced by the Grah. It has some traction here in, uh, in Chutzlaritz as well. My, my family Rav, Rabbi Yisrael Reisman, is uh, rather opposed to this chumrah. He says, it's a chumrah on top of a chumrah. Chumrah of Pesach is Midrabanan in the first place. It's, it's not a dindaraisa. On Pesach, you, you don't want to sell yourself, don't sell yourself. It's Baal Yerah. After Pesach, and buying chametz that was sold is only a dindarabanan, a chametz of a Pesach. And, and what are you doing? You, you're, you're taking Parnassah away from Jews. You're, you're not patronizing Jewish stores because they sold their chametz. You're going to non-Jewish stores. Mitzvah daraisa is to, to patronize Jewish stores. You're supposed to buy from Jews. You're supposed to, you're supposed to support Jewish businesses. So we have a clear-cut mitzvah daraisa, he would say, we have a chumrah, the Chum Sofer said, don't be mafakfik on Mechiras Chametz. We have a chumrah of Samachronim, the Gon, Rebarak Tumor Frankel, not to, not to eat Chametz that was sold on Pesach. Because of a chumrah of Samachronim on a Dindra Banan, you're going you're gonna to neglect the Mitzvah Daraisa. But nevertheless, the Gon, the Rebarak Tumor Frankel knew this as well. They, they also knew that there's a Mitzvah to support Jews, and they nevertheless felt that there was a. Uh, that there was a uh, that the, the, the whole thing is so dubious, they felt that at some point, you have to respect the halacha as well, at some point they felt the whole thing was just so, so dubious that, the, that they would avoid chametz that was sold on Pesach. And this is a microcosm, really, of the last 500 years of literature on Mechiras Chametz. The, over, the, the consensus allows it. It was common throughout the generations. Most poskim allowed it. Today it's a universal institution. Every rabbi does it. Lamai said, there are those who are mafakfik on it, there are those who will not do it personally, there are those who won't eat chametz that was sold on Pesach, and then even those who, uh, who, who don't, uh, some of them you know, won't, won't purchase chametz, real chametz, but are willing to sell themselves or purchase after Pesach chametz, that's safi chametz or chametz nuksha. This is rabbinic chametz, this is how the Star K puts it, for example, on their website. They say many Jews have a meritorious custom not to sell real chametz, therefore providing you a list of products which are, none of these should you eat on Pesach, but some of these are 
bona fide real chametz, where there's a meritorious custom to avoid selling, and some of these are only sfekas and drabanans to begin with, in which case the starke feels that even according to this chumrah, they feel that there, there's no reason to be stringent. You, you, pile, you pile on one more drabanan on top of the whole tower, then they feel there's really no longer any need to be so stringent.